0: This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. To continue our series in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one. We're going to be ending chapter one. Man, I, could, I, I didn't realize getting into this study of this letter how much is in it. I could spend years on it, but I know you probably don't want to. So we're going to keep moving along. Um, so as you're turning to Ephesians one, we're going to be starting in verse 17. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and pray uh, for our night, and then we'll, we'll begin reading that together. Father, we thank you for uh, the promise and the presence of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you're here with us, Lord, that you are not something or someone to study about, but Lord, we actually get to engage with you and encounter you tonight. And Lord, we ask that these words that we are going to be studying and meditating on and learning about, Lord, would truly enter the depths of our soul. Lord, we just, we admit to you and confess to you that we are filled with distractions and uh, things on our mind other than you. So would you just quiet our hearts tonight? Lord, would you help us to be uh, good listeners to your spirit and to your word? And, Lord, that you would shape us as your followers, your apprentice, your children, Lord, into being who you always designed us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. Let's, that's, you can follow along on the screens or in your Bible. I, this is Paul talking, keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only at the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. How good is that? Man, there's so much in this little tiny passage. We're going to have to kind of just slow down and, and kind of pack this up. But there's something I wanted to highlight. And it just let you know at the very beginning is this is the hardest sermon I've ever preached. The reason for that is not because the content. It's not uh, because it's something controversial in our, in our culture. It's hard because this is an impossible sermon for me to preach and for you to understand. Paul actually says right here that unless the Holy Spirit intervenes right now and illuminates and enlightens your heart, you won't get it. So I actually feel really good right now, okay? Zero pressure on me. This is all between you and the Holy Spirit. So um, I I love, as I was studying this, I, I, I don't I didn't really catch this till later on in the week. As I was studying this and studying this, and like I normally do, studying so all day Wednesday, just reading different things and listening and praying, and I was struggling, trying to figure out how to communicate just how brilliant and profound this is. Until I realized that Paul had the exact same problem. He says here in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Meaning, listen, everything I just talked about, remember that big run on sentence we talked about last week? We talked about how he's chosen you and he's adopted you and he's promised grace and peace over his people and all these blessings, the things we're going to be talking about tonight about his power and his inheritance and the church. All of these things are just so incredibly heavy and beautiful and profound found that according to Paul, as he's writing this church that he loves so much that he planted 10 years earlier, he just says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit illuminate this and reveal this to you, you won't get it, which is why we invited the Holy Spirit here in a new way during worship. It's why we prayed before I even read this passage, right, because God actually has to do some work tonight for us to comprehend what's happening here because it's that rich, so um, Tuesday, uh, I turned 33 years old. Um, I realized Jesus also was 33 at the height of His ministry. No pressure for me, but um, I'm going to see if I can just follow in His shoes, uh, maybe in a more metaphorical way. But who knows? Um, but on on Tuesday night, we uh, uh, Jen's like, "What do you want to do for your birthday?" And and so I'm like, "I want to do like a sunset surf, right?" And so I um, texted my my uh, my open table that meets on Saturday mornings and we read the word and we surf. And I'm like, hey guys, come and surf with me. Invited some friends, specifically some friends who don't surf. I'm like, hey, come and surf with me. It's my birthday. They're like, I don't surf. I'm like, it's my birthday. Come because you love me. And they're like, "Ugh." I'm like, exactly. Yeah, come. So they came. So there's a couple guys that showed up to surf who just don't surf and have told me they don't like surfing. And let me just describe this scene to you, my friends. We're out there and it's warm bath temperature water It's clear. You can see it's clear down to the floor. The sun is setting. There's a slight ocean breeze just hitting your face. I'm amongst incredible friends, and we're laughing and talking. We're gliding along this wave that is propelling us forward, and it is as close to heaven as you can get here on earth. And and as we get out of the water, I look at one of my friends who has told me I don't like surfing, and I'm like, what do you think about that? He was like, you got me. <laughs> like, and there was like this moment of like, yes, I felt like a surfing evangelist. Like I just, all I want is for people to experience how good it is. And there's so many people who don't like it or they're afraid of sharks or something dumb like that. Um, poor Bethany Hamilton. Um, anyways, not totally. In but there's something inside of me that, and I try not to talk about surfing too much here because I know it's not everyone's thing. But there's something inside of me as someone, I'm not even great, but I just enjoy being in the water, that I find myself talking to people, and this is, this is my language. I wish you could get it. I wish you could just understand. I wish you could experience just that That feeling of flying. It's the closest thing you can have to flying on this side of heaven, right? And it's just this amazing euphoric experience where you're humbled by the enormity of the water that you're in and you're aware of God's presence. And I describe it and I'm looking at these people, these glazed looks on their faces, just like, I don't get it. And I imagine that Paul who's someone who spent his entire life, entire career trying to kill Christians, encounter the power and the love of Jesus in such a radical way that he has now turned his life upside down. He's writing this church and he's just like, I wish you could get this there's this hope that happens when your life is attached to Jesus. There's this hope that is alive that I wish you could just get it, but I can't talk about it enough. I can't describe it eloquently enough. I can't paint a picture well enough for you to get it. You have to experience it. My friends, there are some of us sitting in this room tonight who have heard about this hope and have never experienced the incredible nature of it. And we're going to walk through these verses and we're going to describe and we're going to study how Paul describes this hope, but I'm going to just remind us what he reminds us. It has to be an act of God to reveal how good this hope is because there's no way we could understand it apart from his help. But let's take a look. And as we're doing this, my own your only job, your job tonight is to be a good listener. And not a good listener like you're taking notes, like you're listening to not what Benji's saying, what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Let him reveal himself to you in these texts. Does that sound good? So three things we're gonna look tonight that Paul covers here. Number one, he talks about hoping connected to inheritance. Number two, he talks about hope being connected to power, the, the power of Christ. And the third thing he talks about at the end of Ephesians chapter 1 is that hope is connected to the church. And so let's kind of go through these here. Um, and, and before we dive into the, the first one of how hope is connected to the inheritance, I, I want to just kind of paint a little bit of a, of a historical background here of what's happening and so if, if you can, I want to take you back about 10 years earlier when Paul wrote this letter, when he planted the church in Ephesus, because I think it'll give us uh, kind of an understanding a little bit more of the kinds of people and the kind of world that was existing at this time. And so if you have a Bible, flip back a few, um, a few pages to Acts chapter 19. We're going to read about the start of the church in Ephesus. Again, this is about 10 years before Paul writes his letter. And we're going to read exactly how it started. It It was radical. And we're going to start in verse 23. So Paul's been there, he ends up being there about two or three years, and kind of at the rise of this new movement called the way, it begins to start ruffles, ruffling some feathers that it continues to for decades to come. But let's read exactly what happens. And remember, this is happening in the very city that we're going to be reading this letter to. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, which was the early um, name of the church. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, who was kind of the, the Greek goddess who governed Ephesus, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers and related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see here how this fellow Paul has conceived and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus. And in, practica- in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only in that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus and Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message, begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some, some were shouting one thing, some others, Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Sounds like a good riot, you know? (laughs) The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense for the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you, can you imagine this? Can we put this picture of the theater in Ephesus together? This theater holds 25,000 people. Imagine this. For hours in unison, a city is shouting over every single person. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The gospel was so provocative and so powerful in that day. It was converting so many hearts and so many followers of Jesus that it actually began to rob the economic stability of that state that came through this goddess called Artemis. And so I want to, for a minute, uh, ask the question, who is Artemis and why was this so central to the city of Ephesus? And what does it have to do with what we're about to read tonight? And so I wanted to let's just pull up an, another. Uh, I want to show a picture of Artemis. Just uh, beautiful, you know. She's, um, she's a lovely, lovely goddess. Uh, this is uh, this is an early sculpture of probably what they would have looked like. Some of the idols that would have been crafted, kind of in her. And this is, uh, most historians believe that the Roman goddess Diana and and the Greek goddess Artemis were pretty much synonymous. Diana came first and the Greeks kind of adopted that and kind of made her this really prominent figure. She was the twin sister of Apollos, as the myth holds, and she was the daughter of Zeus. And she held great power in the imagination of, of the Greek world and her Um, And her dwelling, her temple, was in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, she was um, what really made that city thrive. She was the goddess of the hunt. And so uh, in a lot of her sculptures, and a lot of her describing, she had uh, flaming arrows that she would be shooting at animals. And so, which draws up an interesting imagery later on in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul says that the shield of faith extinguishes the fiery darts of the enemy, the fiery darts were part of that culture. So what Artemis would shoot, um, and later on, those kind of and you can kind of see kind of those bubbles around her chest were either meant breasts or eggs or something. She was the goddess of fertility. So if you wanted to have children, you wanted to have blessed children, you would pray and worship Artemis. Um, and probably most important for the Ephesians is she was the protector of that city. She was the reason Ephesus uh, next to Rome was the most affluent city in the ancient world. And all of that pointed back for, again, for kind of the, the Greek pagan city back to Artemis. She was the reason why they were flourishing. And so you can imagine as this city as it continues to thrive, there begins to be this superstitious undercurrent of we have to appease Artemis in order to make sure our city continues to thrive. We have to continue to appease Artemis in order if we want our families to thrive, if we want to have children. We have to appease Artemis if we want to have good harvest and good hunting. And so everything rolled back to this goddess. And they in the middle of it, they created this uh, this. Um, This temple for her, which is actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I think we have a picture of this as well. This is uh, obviously a copy of what they imagined it would look like. They owned around 70,000 acres around this area. And so people from all around the world would go and they would worship Artemis in this place. So guys, this, this is Ephesus. This is Ephesus. And the reason we do this is to understand these were real people in a real time, but right, very real circumstances and situations that Paul is writing to. And so as we understand that, as that has shaped the culture, it's one other thing I really wanted to point out is Artemis wore this, and you can go back to the picture, where you can see kind of a necklace that she wore, this zodiac necklace that she had. In uh, kind of the greco Woman. Roman worldview, they believed that fate governed the universe, and that necklace Artemis wore controlled fate itself. so we talk about the sovereignty of God they talk about the sovereignty of Artemis right? and it all well within this and so you can imagine the the fear and the reverence that would come over this people um, for this goddess, the superstition that was pervasive in all of their families and workplaces, and so even as pagans would become followers of Jesus, and even as Jews would convert to follow Jesus as their Messiah, there was still this thing that hovered around them of like, I want to follow Jesus, but there was this just insurmountable cultural pressure, but what about Artemis? What if we don't have peace? Or what if, what if she's real? And God's and the God of the, the, these people are following the way. What if Jesus isn't real? And so there's kind of this back and forth movement you can tell. And so when Paul lays out this letter to his church that he started about 10 years prior, he's reminding them of who Jesus is. He's reminding them of just how powerful Christ is and what their relation with him is like. And so with that in our imaginations, let's go back to Ephesians 1.18. He says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. And then he lays out three things. And the first one is this, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, this is a really fascinating, um, this is a really fascinating idea, this, this idea of inheritance. And I have to confess, when I was reading this, and even some commentators spoke to this, um, I was studying the previous verses about our inheritance, right? We're adopted, we're chosen. Those have massive inclinations about what our inheritance is. And I woke up this morning with something in my, in my spirit, and I was just I'm like, I don't think that's right. And that's, this, like, never really happens to me. And so I read the verse again. I want you to read it slowly. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So our hope, I mean, guys, I could I, I you know I spent probably about five hours studying something that I'm not even preaching on today because I don't think it's right. Our hope is not connected to our inheritance in Christ. Our hope is connected to his inheritance, which is, if you read this, his glorious inheritance in his holy people. His inheritance is us. Our hope, this, this hope that later Peter calls is, is living, right? This hope is connected to who Jesus is, is not just connected into what we're going to get, what's coming our way, our inheritance. Our hope is actually connected to his inheritance, which is us. is this is unbelievable that Paul would say the first thing is like, I just pray you get this. I pray the Holy Spirit would illuminate your hearts so that you would understand that the hope we have is because someday God's going to get his inheritance and that inheritance is you. Now, think about this in contrast to this goddess Artemis that was so prolific in that city that was always trying to be appeased, was always angry, was always unpredictable. And Paul says, no, 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 our hope is that that we serve a God who can't wait to have us. We're not serving a God we're trying to appease. We're not serving a God who's angry or unpredictable. We serve a God who just can't stand to be without us and longs to have us back with him. I mean, think about what that does in, in this early church. Think about what that does in us today if we start understanding that our hope is anchored to the fact that our God cannot wait to have us with him forever. Without the, without the bondage and the weight of sin and darkness and death in this life, he cannot wait Every once in a while, I get the opportunity to, to travel and, and to speak at a camp or a conference. And, and every time I do, it's this trade where I love getting to do that. I love preaching, but I hate being away from my family. And so one of um, kind of our traditions that has kind of come into place is my kids know if dad ever leaves for a few days to go speak somewhere, he always comes back with a little gift, right? And that doesn't fix everything, but it just kind of helps, right? It's a little Band-Aid. And so what kind of become through this pattern is when I walk through the doors, I say I've been speaking somewhere, and I come back, and I walk through the doors, it's just, just this whole parade, because we have lots and lots of kids. I can't even count them anymore. They just come running to me at the door, like, da, 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 and they wrap around my legs. And I'm like, oh, children, I'm just so thankful that you missed me. And they immediately just grab my head and pull it the close. They said, where's my breath? It's true, huh, Jen? It's so true. And I'm just, and I just don't even acknowledge it. I just pretend they want me, right? I just like, I'm like, you missed me so much, but where's my present? And I'm like, ah, oh, we're going to get it just every single time without fail. And and as funny as cute that is, I I think this is actually a pretty accurate depiction of our understanding of inheritance. Listen, do we have an inheritance in Christ? Yes. Is it rich? Yes. Are my kids going to get a present? Yes. Is it rich? No. (laughs) But, But there's something coming for us, and that matters. It matters to us. But I know as their dad, more than a present or a trinket, more than a little treat that they're getting, what my children really need is a father who loves them, a father who absolutely missed them when they were away. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm actually, the longer boy, the more I'm like, I can't wait to be home with Jen and the kids. And although in the moment they can't wait for the present, I know at a, at a subconscious core level, what they need is a father who's crazy about them. And I think this is what Paul's picking up on. He says, listen, our our hope is tied to the fact that we are his inheritance. We have a father who cannot wait to be with us. Yes, he's given us the gift and gift and gift and gift upon gift. Those are powerful, especially the gospel. But there's something even more shocking to us is that we have a God who finds his inheritance in us. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just look at God and I'm like, really? We're it? We're what you sent your son for? We're what you're crazy about? We're what you govern your universe trying to grasp our attention? We're, we're it? And this passage along with Hebrew 12, when it talks about that, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Listen, the joy set before him wasn't being on the throne because he already was on the throne. The joy set before him was having us in the throne room with him. War is inheritance, and he can't wait to have us. And I don't know about you, that gives me hope. It gives me hope that my dad, my heavenly father, loves me. Second thing I wanted to point out is that, or that I don't want to point out, Paul points out is that our hope is connected to this idea of power. This idea of the power that happens because of Christ's work on the cross and resurrecting. And so let's read this again, starting in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and, verse 19, his incomparably right, great power for us who believe. Think about you sitting in a little, tiny, dusty, dim-lidded house church with 20 other people, and you don't know if you're going to lose your life because you've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. And Paul writes this letter that is circulated all around Asia Minor, and and, and it's being passed and passed, and you're reading it out loud, and you're being reminded. Don't you forget, don't you forget whose power you have. You may feel powerless. You may feel like the world around you, the world of Artemis, the world of false goddesses and demonic activity, you may feel like that is so heavy and prevalent and powerful, but do not forget who you are serving. says his incomparable great power for us to believe. I love this. If you skip down. To verse 21, he reminds them, far above every rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. I mean, how huge is this? He doesn't mention Artemis explicitly, but we know again in Acts 19 that that they do, that this is a big deal in that city. That there is this loud narrative being proclaimed that Artemis is the most powerful God. She controls fate. There are temples and coins far, found as far as France. How her fame spread. And Paul reminds us no, 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 the Jesus that you serve. The Jesus you serve is seated right now above every single power, every single authority, every single realm. There is no name in heaven or on earth that is more powerful than his. And that power of that God, of Jesus, that was raised from the dead is for you. I mean, I don't know about you, but that would give me hope. That would give me hope, but it doesn't give me hope if it's just something I learned. It gives me hope if it's real, if it's something I've experienced. The power of God is something within me that no matter what comes at me, no matter what lie I've been fighting, no matter what sickness I've been battling, no matter what hopelessness I've been attacking me, there's something deeper, more rooted inside of me called the resurrection power of Jesus that will not let me go. And it moves me forward. And it moved this church forward so that 200 years later, the downfall of Artemis is connected to the Christian movement. There are writings 200 years later by early church fathers says, great was the fall of the demon Artemis. How did a couple of house churches overthrow the most prolific goddess of their day? It was because they had a power that was so much bigger than their own. This wasn't built on good programs or strategies or good preaching. This was built around the power of the Holy Spirit that we saw on display at Calvary when he resurrected Jesus from death. And it's for you right here today. But my friends, I have to ask you, and could we just take some inventory of our heart Is that something you agree with theologically or is that something that is burning inside of you as a conviction every single day of your life? Christians are a lot of things. There are a lot of things to the world. There are a lot of things to each other. But according to Paul and according to this letter, maybe one of the first things that should be said about the church along things like our love Long things about our care for orphans and widows should be this idea of power. This power that cannot be stopped. And so it kind of begs this question. Well, what does that power look like? You know? And there's all sorts of things that we could be imagining. What does that look like? And I just want to say right here, I don't have an exhaustive study on what that looks like. Maybe I will someday. But all I know are there are things in this world that take people out and would take me out if it wasn't for the grace of God. And those are the things, those are the moments where I really see and sense this power that is so far beyond me, so far beyond my own ability or strength or training or gifting. It's something Alice, I just want to tell you a story just to illustrate. I, I could think of a dozen, but this is one of my favorites. Jen and I were playing music in a bar in Los Angeles um, a little while ago. Um, a friend invited us. He was doing this thing, kind of like his outreach thing. Um, and we're there, and we're playing music. And there's this couple sitting at the bar drinking wine, and they're watching us, and they seem to be enjoying the music. And afterwards, we go and sit with them, and, and this couple just begins to start telling us, and our friends that they're on the brink of divorce, um, that they have thought about it for a long time, and this is it. It was their last date meeting before that they were officially going to divorce each other. They're sitting in this grungy little bar in Highland Park, Los Angeles, and we happened to be there playing some folk music cuz our friend wanted us to do something and we're like sure and we're talking to this couple and we somehow we begin to separate and me and my friend are talking to the guy and Jen and my friend's wife are talking to the girl and he starts just telling us I mean about this horrific dark life that he's lived of drugs and addiction and violence and abuse and adultery and all of these things. And all of these things I'm just looking at and they're overwhelming me. I'm like, this guy is so deep into the grips of the power of this world that I don't know what to do. And he begins to start showing us his arm and it has his growth on it, like, like a tumor-sized growth on his arm. And he's like, yeah, it's like, I can't move my arm. I can't do this anymore because of this growth. And something came over um, me in this moment that is, was not me. It's not my personality. If you know me, I'm a pretty kind of docile person, go-with-the-flow person. And he was talking about, there's no hope for my marriage. There's no hope for this. And I literally said, I'm like, if God heals your arm, do you think he could heal your marriage? And he says, yeah. I'm like, let's pray. And so... We're there in this bar, and we just start. I just lay my hands on this gross, like, (laughs) arm. I'm like, I'm not that holy. I'm telling you, Um, and we start praying. I start praying with everything I've got. Like Jesus, heal this guy's arm, and and nothing happens. Nothing happens, and, I'm, and I just walk away, just being like, "Lord, I'm just—I I felt like You wanted me to do that. I was obedient. Didn't feel bad. I'm like, I'm, 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 I would rather step out in faith. Just kind of that whole—I'm talk, self-talk. I'm like, I'm good, you know. Like, it's kind of, embar- <laughs> kind of embarrassing, but so it's, it's holding another man's arm in a bar—it's totally natural. It's holding his tumor, not his arm. Anyways, um, so we're we're there in <laughs> the scenario. A couple weeks later, my friend who we were with that night in the bar calls me up and calls me and calls me and calls me again. I'm like, dude, what's happening? And he's like, you're never going to believe what happened. I'm like, what happened? And he's like, I was, at, um, I was at a skate park, and that guy we prayed for, remember him? I'm like, of course. He's like, he saw me, pulled over his car, and came running to me, grabbed me, and said, look at my arm. It's gone. Come on, man. And I'm like, What? And he's like, no, but he's like, I'm not kidding you, bro. Like, his arm was completely fine. It was, he said, the next day it started to shrink, and it was gone. Amen. And he's like, the guy's coming to my church this Sunday. He says, they, him and his wife have, all, have started a, a narcotics anonymous class together. And things like this. I mean, it's an unbelievable yeah. moment. And, and all I can think about, there is this, there's, this, there's this moment where I just look at that, I'm like, Man, this guy's got a lot of darkness in his life. But there's something, there's something about Jesus that is bigger than it. It's bigger than it. I have to believe that as a follower of Jesus, this is not some religion I signed up for. This is something that has overtaken my life. And I cannot help but believe that this will change other people's lives the same way it's drawn me out of my own darkness. I think this is what Paul's saying. He's like, I wish you could get it. I wish you could have this hope and just illuminated for you by the Holy Spirit. Andrew Murray says this I love this. The devil, darkness, and death may swagger and boast. The pangs of life will sting for a while longer. But don't worry. The forces of evil are breathing their last. I love that. Let's read again. The forces of evil are breathing their last. Not to worry, He is risen. That is for every one of us, not for the preacher.